we're starting a new series for the whole month of March on why Jesus spoke in parables. Now, if you ever wonder why in the Old Testament, Moses did not speak in parables, the prophets rarely speak in parables, but in the New Testament, Jesus mostly spoke in parables. Now, throughout the centuries, biblical scholars and theologians have been puzzled by the sheer wisdom and complexity of the parables. But in the last 25 years, they came into agreement and a conclusion that parables are simply Old Testament teachings told in a new way. Let me say that again. Parables are simply Old Testament teachings told in a new way. That means they are Old Testament teachings, Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament commands told in a new way. So those who are ready to listen will understand, but those whose hearts are hard and follow will not understand and reject Jesus. Today, I want to talk to you about one of the most misunderstood parables in the New Testament, the parables, the parable of the two builders. Contemporary, I should say, the parable of the two engineers, because builders are engineers. Let's pretend that you don't know this, or if you know, let's pretend that this is your first time hearing this. What we are interested to know is, what is the meaning of this parable and how is it relevant to my life? So basically, the parable of the two builders or the two engineers is about two men who build a house on different foundations. One built a house on a shaky foundation. The other one built a house on a firm foundation. At the end of the story of this very short story, Jesus would say something about what it means to build on a sure foundation. But since parables are Old Testament teachings in a new way, let me start with the origin of this parable. I'm going to get this all the way from, from the prophet Isaiah. So prophet Isaiah lived in a time when the kingdom of Israel was split in two. Now, if you're reading the Old Testament and you're probably not aware, if you read kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judea, you're probably confused. Why are there two kingdoms? Isn't there one only one kingdom of God? See, there was a time when the kingdom was split in two. The ten tribes of Israel, called Kingdom of Israel, split. They abandoned their covenant with God. They abandoned the king, and they, and they created their own government. They put up their own king. They put up their own temple and their own gods. The two other tribes that, that were left were the Kingdom of Judea and Benjamin. So when we talk about Kingdom of Israel, we're talking about the 10 tribes who rebelled against God. Isaiah was prophesying against them. And they were saying, and he was saying, you should not do that. You should come back to God. Because there's only one covenant, one promise between us and God. And that's, and that's a, the covenant in the Old Testament. If you think about it, the story of Israel, the story of the rebellion of the 10 tribes, is like the story of the prodigal son. This is like... This is like the prodigal son who went away from home and pursued other sources of pleasure. The ten tribes were like that. Or this is like a woman who one day decided to leave the house and look for another lover. This is the story of the ten tribes of Israel. Israel has abandoned their covenant with God. So in return, God withdrew his protection from Israel and let the Assyrian army rose to power and threaten the nation of Israel. And here's the thing, instead of coming back to God like the prodigal son, the 10 tribes of Israel, under the banner of rebellion, made an alliance with the neighboring nation, the enemy nation called Egypt. 
instead of coming back to God, they made an alliance with Egypt. And I was, I was studying this and I, I cannot believe what I'm reading. I mean, it doesn't make sense. When you hear about Egypt, you should, you should think about the 400 years of slavery. This is the nation that enslaved them for 400 years. This is the nation who taught them how to worship idols. Instead of coming back to God, they came to Egypt for help, for protection. See, if covenant is like marriage, that means they first committed adultery, and then they looked for Egypt to marry, and then they made a a different covenant. It is not just a political alliance, it is a spiritual alliance. Because to have a covenant with Egypt is to have covenant with our gods. It's not just for political protection, it's for spiritual protection as well. So this is what Isaiah had to say, Isaiah 28 verse 14. He said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death, And with Sheol, we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood, we have taken shelter. See, covenants are made between God and people. So that means this rebel nation abandoned their covenant with Yahweh and made a new covenant with the gods of Egypt. The covenant death with Egypt is about the covenant of death. It says in verse 15, because we have said, we have made a covenant with death. You see, there are so many gods in Egypt. One of the gods in Egypt is called Mot. Mot is the god of death. He rules the underworld. When Israel made a covenant with Egypt, they made a covenant with the underworld god of Egypt. That's what it means. In today's language, we can say, you have sold yourself to the devil. That's what they exactly did. But the obvious question is, why would they choose Mot over Yahweh? Why would they choose Egypt over their covenant existing with Yahweh? Who in the right mind would choose death over life? I was studying this, and I couldn't fathom the degradation of their choice. And I can only think of one thing. There's the contemporary of Isaiah, it's called Prophet Jeremiah, who said the same thing in line with what he's saying. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, and I'm reading this from the New Living Translation. This is what he said. He said, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things, and it's desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? If you hear the word deceitful, you should go back to Genesis chapter 3. The first time it was mentioned, The serpent was deceitful. He deceived Adam and Eve. What what Jeremiah is saying is that our hearts is at par in the same category as the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. Deceitful. It's no wonder why when we are having problems and then we go to our friends and say, brother, can you please advise me? I don't know what to do. I'm having problems and issues in my life. And then your friend would say, trust your heart. Is it? Really? And yet Jeremiah is saying, your heart is wicked. It is sick. No one understands it. And trust your heart? I don't think so. I think this is the reason why we are having problems today. I think this is the reason why our kids are taught diversity, exclusion, and equity rather than science and math. I think this is a problem why 
If when people go across a border illegally, we call them victims, not criminals. You see, five years ago before the pandemic, theft is theft, no matter how much. Now, if you go to California and steal less than $1,000, it's called reparation. You see, we have a problem, not with social justice, but with our hearts. The problem is the heart. The heart of man is the problem. So God responded by saying in verse 16, he said, Therefore, says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid the foundation in Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. A stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation that whoever believes will not be in haste. Now, this is kind of mushy. Let, let me explain this. If you ask any Jew today about what a foundation stone is, they will only have one reference to it. If you ask any Muslim about the foundation stone, they only have one reference to it. The foundation stone is where the former Ark of the Covenant stood. It's the former location of the Holy of Holies, the temple of the living God. That is the foundation stone. The foundation stone, after the Romans destroyed the temple and the succeeding kingdoms invaded Jerusalem, the Muslims in the 6th century built the Dome of the Rock. See, the Dome of the Rock is where the foundation stone is found, even until today. Inside the Dome of the Rock is a rock formation the Muslims call the foundation stone. This foundation stone is, is very interesting. According to the Muslims in their tradition, this is where, this is where Ibrahim offered his son Ishmael, not Itzak, uh, because they believe it was not Isaac who he offered. And according to their tradition as well, it was where Prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven before he died. He did not die, actually. He was like Elisha who ascended to heaven. And thank God, it's all tradition. It's not true. That's not in the Bible. The Jews believe, though, that this foundation stone is where Abraham bound Isaac before he almost sacrificed him to death. This is also the former location of the Holy of Holies, the foundation stone. This is very important now for the Jewish nation. But we have the Dome of the Rock. What the Jewish nation is, is waiting for now is for whatever miracle that will happen, that the Dome of the Rock will be destroyed and they will erect the third temple. Everything is almost prepared for the third temple. They're just waiting for the exact moment, the exact chance where they can set up the new temple in there on top of the foundation stone. So this one, whenever Isaiah talks about foundation stone, he was referring to this foundation stone. The temple stood on this rock, this foundation stone. And this foundation stone is a symbol of an immovable foundation of God's covenant with Israel. What God is saying in Isaiah is this, that you should trust not in the might of Egypt or in the army of Egypt. You should trust in the faithfulness of God who has built the foundation for his house. This is what it means to trust in this foundation. But the prophecy was soon forgotten. Hundreds of years passed, they forgot this prophecy. And then one day, Jesus picked up the message of the parable and told us this, quoting this Isaiah chapter 28. And he told us in a new way, the parable. So Luke chapter 6, 47 to 49 begins this parable of Jesus. He said, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man 
building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. But when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it has been well built. But the one who hears does not do them is like a man, an engineer, who built a house on the ground without foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus was talking about a parable of two engineers who built houses on different kinds of foundation. They built one on shaky ground, the other one on a rock. Now, if you're thinking this guy doesn't make sense, he knew that the foundation is not firm, why would he build the foundation on that? And you might be thinking this guy is simply nuts. No, there, there must be something going on in here. You see, during summer in Israel, the ground is very dry and hard like bronze. It's very hard to dig. So inexperienced builders will compromise building the house, will just dig enough, just enough, but not deep enough to reach the rocks. Because all they want is to build fast. They don't want to be under the sun. So they're not wise in that, reg- in that respect. So when the storm comes, when rainy season comes, this hard, dry ground will become as soft and mushy as a pudding. And the house will simply collapse. What Jesus is saying is that the person who comes to him and hears his word but refuses to follow him is like someone who is in a hurry to build a house without counting the cost. He's only after the spectacular and the wonders and the healing and the food distribution. He's really not after what Jesus wants to say. He's not after what Jesus is saying or asking. He's just after the benefits of what Jesus has to give. A person who builds his house on a shaky foundation will not last. See, Prophet Jeremiah talked about the deceitfulness of the heart. And Jesus echoes it in his parable as he talked about the bad fruit. This is the continuation of the parable. In verse 43, he said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. I mean, you will know the tree, even if you don't know what tree it is, by its fruit, correct? For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. Two of the most favorite uh, national fruit in Israel is is grapes and figs. So he said, the good person out of the treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Now watch this. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What comes to your mouth, through your mouth, is what is inside. It's in your heart. So he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? See, good fruits cannot come from worthless shrub. The fruit is the evidence of the tree. And if you put Jeremiah side by side with Jesus, and when Jeremiah said his piece, And you will almost hear Jesus repeating Jeremiah. This is what Jeremiah said. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17 verse 9. This is what Jesus said. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. It's almost the same thing. It's about the evil heart. And whatever comes out of it is evil. You see, evil people can only produce evil, not good. Now, this is kind of complicated for sure. But what Jesus is saying 
is that after you heard him, you understand his claims, you understand his challenge, and then you decide to leave and just forget about him. What he's saying is that if you do that, you are at the very core of your heart, evil. That's kind of hard to accept. What if you're a good person? What if you're a kind person? And you just want, don't want the message of Jesus. Are you evil? Well, that's what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that if you are here just to have a good time, just to enjoy the fellowship, just to enjoy the music without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and you did not follow Jesus, at the very core of your heart, you are evil. Let, let me expound on this one because, because this is kind of complicated. You see, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was addressing the Pharisees. And you know, if we, we talk about the Pharisees, we're talking about the strictest, the most religious group of people in Israel, the Pharisees. They are, they're not actually almost priests. Some of them are priests. Some of them are members of the Sanhedrin, the council. But they are very religious. What they do, what do they do? They pray three times a day. They fast twice a week. They give their tithe. They follow the law to the letter. That's a Pharisee. If you're thinking of what is the epitome of a religious person, you think about Pharisee. Think about that. And Jesus was addressing the Pharisee. And here's what Jesus have to say. He repeated that phrase. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is how we address the Pharisees. Now, watch this because this is challenging. When Jesus talked in Matthew 12 to the Pharisees, he said, you brood of vipers. What does it mean, brood of vipers? Brood is another English term for descendants of. Vipers is a venomous snake. When you think of venomous snake, you think back to Genesis chapter 3, the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. What Jesus is saying in short of, he, he was in short of insulting the Pharisees that you are the sons of your father, the devil, the serpent. How can these people who obey the law, who give their tithes, who fast twice a week, who pray three times a day be descendants of the devil? How is that possible? See, Jesus was not wrong about them. He was telling them that they were descendants of this evil. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about criminals. Jesus wasn't talking about seasoned inmates. He was talking to the strictest group of people who obey the law religiously. And yet Jesus calls them evil. Now, why evil? Here's the answer. Because evil people may speak flattery. They may be polite. They may be gentle. They may not be cursing people to their face. But evil people are evil at the core of their hearts. If we contemporize this, what Jesus is saying is that evil people can read the Bible, can pray, can give generously, can attend the church, but still remain evil because evil is the very core of your heart. Religiosity does not solve the problem of the heart. See, no matter how kind and generous and thoughtful you are, you still have the problem with the heart. And we are all have that problem. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Look at what Jesus said in verse 46. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now, when I was reading this, I was kind of puzzled. What, is, what does Jesus mean, Lord, Lord? I thought that people were just flattering him by calling him titles, Lord, Lord. But I realized this is not about the title. I was wrong about this one. When I tried to dig a little bit deeper, I realized that this is something more about the true identity of Jesus. When people call him Lord, Lord, 
they're actually calling him Lord Yahweh. You see, when a Jewish person reads the Bible without speaking, the Bible would say, Lord, that's the title, and then Yahweh, the personal name of God, the four-letter word YHWH. But when they read it orally, they do not pronounce, they do not speak the name of God. So instead of saying, Lord, that, that, they would say, Lord, Lord. So the Hebrew word for Lord is Adonai. So when a, a Jewish person reads the Bible, they would say Adonai, Adonai. Or in English, Lord, Lord, instead of Lord Yahweh. So when Jesus was telling the people that you are calling me Lord, Lord, and you're not following me, these people he's saying is that they're calling him Lord Yahweh. They know who Jesus is. He's Lord Yahweh. He's the exact representation of the Father. I mean, he's not just some rabbi. He's not just some good teacher. He's the Lord Yahweh. Lord, Lord. Adonai, Adonai. Whenever you see this formula in the Bible, you'd always, you should always have this quick mind to know that this is about addressing who Jesus really is. So here's the thing. If they're calling him Lord Yahweh, but are not following him, it only shows their speech was all a lie. It just means they're all hypocrites. And what they're saying is flattery at best. Let me put it this way. I want to be as careful as I can because this is kind of sensitive. But there are people who are sincere. There are people who are genuinely seeking after God. But no matter how sincere and genuine, if these people, after hearing Jesus, decided to reject the claims of Jesus, decided to pursue God through another path, through another direction, then these people are evil to, it, to their hearts. That is what Jesus is saying. No matter how good, how, how you think you're good you are, or how religious you are, or like a Pharisee you are, if you reject Jesus, you are evil to your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. See, Jesus claims to be the truth, the truth, the way, and the life. And there's no other. That means there's no other path to God. See, some people who are genuinely seeking after God would say, I want to reach God, but I don't like Jesus. I'd go another way. Maybe the Buddhism way. Maybe the Islam way. Maybe the Jewish way. Now, the Bible is saying Jesus is the only way to God. And if you reject him, it doesn't matter what's inside there. You will never go to God. Your heart is still deceived. That's why Jeremiah is always saying, your heart is desperately sick. You see, there's, it's possible to have a relationship with Jesus. Some people think that following Jesus is just simply being part of a religion, being part of a group. That's not the case. Following Jesus simply means you are having a relationship with Jesus as his disciple. See, following Jesus means you are having a relationship. It's about relationship. Discipleship is about relationship. You cannot relate to a dead person. You can only relate to a person who is alive. And the Bible said Jesus rose from the dead after three days. That means we can have a relationship with God. And what he's asking us is to be his disciples, to follow him, to become his apprentice. One of the most misunderstood phrases is follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? 
See, before you become a doctor or in any other profession, there is what we call internship. You have to go through this length of time where you will intern. You will watch what your superior will do and say. Internship. You see, discipleship is like internship. It means putting yourself under the tutelage of this rabbi called Jesus. To follow Jesus means to become his apprentice, to do whatever he says. This is like Simon says. You know Simon says? Simon says, jump, you jump. Simon says, you fetch, you fetch. Discipleship is like Simon says. When Jesus says, fetch, you fetch. When Jesus says, you stay, you stay. When Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, that means we have to do the same thing. That is what discipleship is all about. Is it full-time job? Oh, yes, it is. Is it five days and then two days off? No, it's not. It's 24-7. See, the disciples left their homes, their professions, their families to be with Jesus for three years. I mean, it's a full-time job to be a disciple. To be a disciple today, it means a lifetime of apprenticeship under Jesus. There's never a time, there should never be a time in your life where you can say, I have graduated from Christianity. I'm done. I know everything. I know everything already. I have reached that level where I am already mature and perfect, and then I'm accepted by God. There's never a time like that. Discipleship is a lifetime under Jesus. If you're the type of person who calls him Adonai, Adonai, and does not follow, cannot decide to follow, or have not decided to follow, or cannot commit to follow, then Jesus says, you're building on shaky ground. If after this preaching, you said, let me think about it, Maybe it's not really that serious. Maybe I have all the time in the world. What Jesus is saying is that you are building on shaky ground. So you're putting your trust on shaky ground. But this means that when the storm comes, when the trouble comes your way, when tragedy strikes, you will go down with it because you're putting yourself, your trust in shaky foundation. I don't know your shaky foundation. Maybe your trust is in your job. Maybe your trust is with your family or friends. Maybe your trust is because you think you're a good person. You might think, well, pastor, I I didn't hurt anyone. I'm trying to be as good as I can and fair as I can. I'm not hurting anyone or taking advantage of anyone. I don't want to sound offensive. If you're thinking that you're good enough for God and God will accept you because of that, I have bad news for you. That's not good enough. That is not good enough. That is never good enough. Listen, no matter how kind, how honest, how generous, how fair, how amicable a person is, as long as his heart remains sick, you're never acceptable to God. Jeremiah said the heart is beyond cure. It's desperately sick. It's dead. It's we, you see, the reason why the father, the prodigal son's father came and embraced his son and said, my son is dead, he's now alive again. It means his, his heart's son must die first before he can be given a new heart. And this is the promise of God to us. See, the promise of God to us is that we are, we are offered a new heart. And the heart doesn't need rehabilitation. The heart needs replacement. This wicked heart must go. 
this wicked heart must be replaced by a new heart that the Spirit of God will give to me. Otherwise, you're still the same you. Isaiah 28 verse 16 says, Therefore says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who slayed the foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And whoever believes will not be in haste or will not be shaken. You see, the foundation stone was also a metaphor for something. Towards the end of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 16, about two weeks before he was crucified, he was in Caesarea Philippi. And he was at the foot of Mount Hermon. He was probably standing at the entrance of the cave in Banias. And he was asking his disciples, who do you think I am? And some of these disciples said, you are Elijah, you are Jeremiah, you are Isaiah, so on and so forth. But then, but then Peter came forward and he said, you are the son of the living God. Matthew chapter 16, verse 8, verse 16. You are the Christ the Son of the living God. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? You see, the Jews are not only waiting for a Messiah because a Messiah is simply a king. But he's more than a king. He's the Son of the living God. You see, after 40 days in the wilderness, after Jesus fasted for 40 days, he was met by this, this uh, character who tempted him three times. And he said, if you are really the Son of God, do this. If you're really the son of God, do that. This guy knows who Jesus is. Every time he would cast out demons, the spirit would say, do, do not harm us, Jesus. You are the son of the living God. They would always address Jesus as who he is, son of the living God. I mean, maybe people don't know, but who Jesus really is, he's the son of the living God. There was no doubt to anyone listening to Peter who really he is. See, Muslims call Jesus prophet. They always say, we believe in Isa al-Masih. He's Messiah, he's also a prophet, but nothing more. The Jews don't believe that he's the Messiah. They believe that he's the fake Messiah. Some other Christian religion would believe that Jesus is a healer, a teacher, a miracle worker, all those good stuff, but not the son of the living God. This one title, this one revelation is crucial to our faith. This is the sure foundation of our faith. Jesus is the son of the living God. It's not because Peter said it. It's not because any other pastor says it. It's because the God, the Father says it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, Jesus said, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What Jesus is saying is that I am building myself a sure foundation, the church on a rock. On a rock. You see, what's interesting is this. All we thought Jesus was, was trying to be original in this. But no. He was quoting from the Old Testament. Isaiah 28 would say, God built a strong foundation on a stone. Jesus was copying the Father. He said, I will build my church on a rock. The same thing with Isaiah 28. Jesus was talking of building his rock on a rock, the sure foundation. But what is this rock he's talking about? He's talking about the sure foundation, the bedrock of our faith. The bedrock of our faith, brothers and sisters, is our confession of who Jesus really is. There's no other person to put our trust but on Jesus, the Son of the living God. What it means is that if you put your trust in Jesus only as a healer, 
only as a miracle worker, only as the one who can cast out demons, only as someone who can calm the storm, it's not enough. You have to put your trust in Jesus, the Son of the living God. And who says that? Is that only Peter? No. It's the Father who revealed that to him. Matthew 16, verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, our faith is built on a strong foundation. It's not we invented this theology or this doctrine or this teaching. We got this from Jesus himself who revealed this to, to Peter by the Father. Jesus is the Son of the living God. We are putting our faith not on any man, but on Jesus alone. We are putting our faith not on a group or a denomination or a church or a pastor. We are putting our faith on Jesus as the Son of God. Let's just say we all die hypothetically. And then you get to the door of the heavens. And then the angel who's there, I'm not sure if it's St. Peter with the, with the chicken thing. I'm not sure about that. So let's just say we all in, in the heaven's door and we're knocking. And that angel would say, what's the password? What's going to be our password? Abracadabra. No. What's going to be a password? How, how will that angel let us in? I think the password is Adonai, Adonai. Because Jesus would say, the people who call him Adonai, Adonai, who does his teaching or follow him, are really his disciples. And opposite, people who call him Adonai, Adonai, who does not follow him, are not really his disciples. And so you have a ticket to heaven if you call him Adonai, Adonai. Of course, that's really not the exact phrase. But I'm saying, people who call him Lord, Lord, have the right to enter because they really call him Lord from their heart. You see, God will know if we are speaking out of flattery. God will know if we're speaking lies. If we say, Lord, Lord, and yet we don't follow him, then we are really speaking lies. We're building on shaky foundation. But if you have committed your life to Jesus, if you have committed to follow Jesus, become his disciple, and call him Lord, Lord, Adonai, Adonai, I think you are on a firm ground. I think you're on a strong foundation. So what now? You can decide now or you can decide later. But you have to make a decision. Because after this, the challenge again of Jesus Christ to the people who are listening to him is that if you listen and come to me and then go and move on without committing yourself to be my disciple, you're on shaky ground. Your hearts are evil. Your hearts need replacement. If you want to commit yourself to Jesus, I want to pray with you. If you want to recommit yourself to Jesus, I want to pray with you too. Let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us another chance to recommit ourselves. Thank you. Thank you for the challenge to deny ourselves daily. It's a daily thing to pick up our cross daily and to follow you. Sometimes out of emotion, we, we make decisions to follow you. And then after a week or so, we forget about you. We become busy with other things. And then we forget our commitment to you. Father, I pray that as we renew our commitment today, I pray that you will look upon us and honor our hearts. So if you want to recommit yourself, 
say this, Jesus, I acknowledge that you are the Master and Lord. I acknowledge that you are Lord Yahweh. I acknowledge that you are the exact representative of the Father. I acknowledge that you are the truth, the way, and the life. And I commit myself to you as your disciple. If you pray the prayer in your heart of hearts, my prayer is that God will honor your hearts. God will honor that commitment. And I pray that as a church, we, we not only enjoy the benefits of being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, but we also enjoy the benefits of having the challenge of our faith, going through the obstacles and the trials, because we know that those things will strengthen our faith. Father, be with us today. Inspire us once more. Convict us with the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.